1: From the center of the hockey universe, this is the Off the
0: Post Podcast.
1: So, Gus, what's going on? You're back in the building. You were here, I don't even know how many months, four months ago, let's say, uh, for a roundtable. But uh, we're going one-on-one this time. That sounds pretty intimate. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, that's kind of a weird thing to to (laughs) start this podcast off with. But, uh, Gus Casteros, you are with McKean's Hockey. You're an analyst there. You break down video, you scout, you also incorporate analytics and how that can relate to scouting and video work. Is that a proper way to
0: to introduce you? Um, I guess that was probably the way back in the day. I think I've I've done less scouting per se. I'm not really in as many arenas as I used to be in the past. Um, However, the analytics melding with the video or watching players and doing that kind of an assessment. I mean, there's there's a natural marriage there. So it, it makes sense to be able to verify some things you see with maybe some things that you're missing through data that you need to pay attention to. And the biggest innovation for me from the analytics perspective is the ideas that have evolved out of it. Mm-hmm. Things like you don't need, a, for instance, a goon on the fourth line anymore Um, The skating game, which was kind of evident, but it's nice to see it verified with with hard data. Um, Those ideas are, to me, more important to the scout than learning the actual analytics and what they individually mean, right? Because at the
1: end of the day, scouts are still scouts. They're there to evaluate players, but maybe they should be evaluating different... Different types of players than they did 20 years ago.
0: And the assessment itself is very, very different. We look at defensemen in a very different manner than we did back in the day. Goaltenders the same way. Forwards, even, like forwards to a degree. I, I've always felt, um, and I've said this on other podcasts right. as well, like that there's an elite first line. Those uh-huh. guys are distinct first line players. That second and third are kind of a mishmash. You can alternate between. For example, the Leafs right now,
1: are very interchangeable.
0: And that fourth line now. Is no longer an energy or a hard checking line, although it still could be. I still think that there's an element of physicality that's required in...
1: And there's usually at least one bruiser. Let's call him a bruiser, not necessarily an enforcer or a fighter, but like someone who's clearly there for a specific reason and it's physicality. Muscle intimidation, physicality. And
0: as long as it's applied um, intelligently, not reckless and loosey-goosey, Physical force is required to remove a man from the puck. You do that intelligently and you're miles ahead of the game. So a lot of these ideas that have that have come out of analytics have just been melded into um, the way that we are now assessing talent and probably will even change probably even the short term as more ideas become more present.
1: Well, I think it's a bit of a misconception that, that scouting and or let's say the eye test and numbers are so far apart. They're really not. Like when you look at – um, say this micro tracking that's, that's going on, you know, tracking zone exits, zone entries, shot assists, stuff like that. Like that's, they're basically scouting. They're just putting down, uh, exact data points. Right. So it's kind of funny. You think there's this big divide, but like at the end of the day, these two communities we'll call them are both watching a lot of hockey, both analyzing the game in some respect. One might be more, uh, leaning towards the empirical data versus what you're seeing and, and, you know your opinion, I guess you could say, your subjective view of that player and how he fits in the team and his skill set and, and whatnot. But at the end of the day, if you're using both,
0: you're probably better off. I think that there's a point where... Um, see, I've always felt that there's enough of a voice in, in the analytics community and online that ideas are spread like wildfire. And it's a good thing yeah. because you have to be able to challenge your own mentality, and remove some of the biases that you seem to miss, even though you think that you're average and balanced and all that. At the same time, I think that there isn't an adequate voice on the scouting side. I feel that most of the quote-unquote scouting opinions come from people that are just watchers of the game. Scouting is a regiment. There's a a distinct craft. You're not just watching players. You're jotting down that reference in time doing something in the future and then comparing it to that reference. It might be something, it might be nothing. For the most part, I would figure if you're watching a player 82 times, you're not going to see a lot of a difference. But if you see him once and then once halfway through and then the other, and then you see a distinct, hey, something's changed, um, you can could, you could make a proper or a better assessment of this player's capability.
1: Plus, a lot of scouting is projecting, so you're not necessarily like, looking at the player in the game right in front of you and going, this is what he is. You're like, I see a lot of raw talent. We just, like, you know, if we can if we can draft this guy, we can really do something with him. Like, there's a lot of sort of, I don't want to say, uh, grabbing on grabbing on to something that's not there, but there's sort of a, a leap of faith that you're taking a bit. And a lot, like you know, the more viewings you get, the better or the higher um, chance of, of that working out for you, presumably.
0: Every player has one elite skill you're in the NHL because of that one elite or more yeah talent. but most guys so it's how are you using the rest of those skills to enhance that elite skill and keep you in the league so it, it takes a little bit of time to be able to kind of you know find that little kernel of truth and once you do it's pretty cool okay after
1: this uh, banter uh let's get down to business here so I wanted to have you in to talk about defensemen. Uh, the position specifically and how it's changed over the years and how we're seeing uh, a, a transition into this, let's call it a new era. Um, we're already a couple of years into it probably, but a lot of people probably haven't grasped the concept of this modern day defenseman. So we'll talk about that. And then uh, we'll get into who your favorite uh, defense groups are across the NHL and um, and just let's just let's just talk hockey. Um, so with the defensemen, um, you know, we're, the days of, of, of the rugged, slow footed defensemen are basically gone by now. I mean, there's still some contracts out there that are allowing players uh, to stick in the league. There's still maybe some biases on the management and coaching side that are allowing certain players to stay in the league. But perhaps because of this infusion of, of skilled players who are young and fast and skating is such an important part of the game. Perhaps that has pressed fast forward on this development of defensemen. One, they need to skate Two, they need to be able to have decent puck skills and three, they can't be there just to push guys around. They need to bring uh, a certain, you know, positional uh, awareness. And I guess that it's just, it's come to a point where, um, the modern-day defensemen have, have taken over and are the majority of uh,
0: defensemen in the NHL, right? It, it happened pretty quickly, too. Yeah. You, you saw, we'll call them those old plodding, slow-footed defensemen. They were quickly shunned from respectable positions only because they weren't able to keep up with the pace of the current NHL. And by current, I mean from the 2005-06 lockout. Things changed after that. It became much more of a speed game. It's much more apparent across the league. First defense pairings are not necessarily big, intimidating bruisers. Exactly. They're nice, good skill players that can skate, have good vision. Um, and there's also the distinction here. See, one of the ideas, we, we think about um, the big bruiser being gone, but there was an element in the past between defensemen I've categorized into two categories, one being right. puck rushers and one being puck movers. Movers are guys that can just get the puck out, so they can do nice outlet pass, they can skate it out if the opportunity presents itself. Who's your your prototypical example of a puck mover? Um, Think of a guy like Matt Niskanen, maybe. Not necessarily known for his big offensive splash. Can't really carry the puck very well. He isn't really natural through the... But he can move it out of his own zone. Good, long outlet passes. Shea Weber is another one. And I can go on a list. They
1: kind of of get the job done in that They move it forward. Yeah.
0: That's their job. They move it forward. Back in the day, you had puck rushers, and you had defensemen that were starting to play behind their net. They were skating it out to the red line and then flooding in the zone after they've thrown the puck in. Well, the concept of throwing the puck in is now pretty much obsolete because it's not used as much as it was or in the fashion it used to be back in the day. Um, So even though I don't feel that it's taboo entirely to dump the puck in, as long as it's strategic, you can do that.
1: And, and there are times when you need to change. Like, you've been out there for two of minutes. Course. It doesn't matter what you're doing. You, It's better than icing it, right? So
0: I'll give you another example. A smaller, quicker forward against a bigger, stronger defenseman who can, instead of being intimidated by the size and give that defenseman yeah. the advantage of using his size, now makes it into a puck race. And now that defenseman has to pivot, mm-hmm. turn around, find the momentum. But by that time, the speedy forward's gone, and he's already retrieved the puck. So it's a good dump-in. I mean, that's the type of strategy you want. Defensemen don't do that anymore. So now I think we kind of made fun of the Montreal Canadiens for moving all that mobility, but they in some way understand that concept. It's easier to get the puck moving up and get the forwards to do what the forwards are supposed to do, score goals. Defensemen who are now starting to change in terms of how they're positioned on the ice are probably better if they're able to do more outlet passing and get pucks out quicker than being able to skate out of it. Obviously, you have the exceptions, the Eric Carlsons. There's even Jake Gardner. I mean, yep. something as local as Jake Gardner who's yep. able to Absolutely. do that. But you don't see him rushing very much because it's a not a necessary skill anymore. So we've taken away the, the big bruising defensemen, and we've also started to dwindle with the puck rushers. And we've compressed a whole bunch of players into puck-moving defensemen. You
1: you hear that's such a buzzword, right?
0: It is, but it's often often misinterpreted because most people think, oh, puck moving is a guy that's able to skate, and that's not necessarily the case. So good outlet guys, and Montreal moving away from P.K. Subban to Shea Weber probably thought, well, he could give us that ability to move the puck up the way that Subban does in a different fashion, and now we have to figure out how to incorporate this type of player into our system.
1: And... I think the the one thing that that we've that the hockey community has gotten away from in regards to defensemen is is caring so much about you know what's going on in front of the net like you know you used to hear back in the day like you know he's just so hard to play against in front of the net, he's so hard to get in the corners a lot of times now um if you're if you have a good stick, another buzzword quote unquote good stick um if you're sound you know positionally, you'll be fine, you don't have to be physical. Um, Matthias Ekholm in uh, Nashville is a decent example of that Nick Nick Jalmerson in Arizona like these guys are fairly big guys, but they don't they don't necessarily have to throw their weight around because they're finding different ways to get the puck back to uh, angle guys out. Um, I feel like that's another shift where uh, physicality isn't necessarily the only way to have the puck turn over. Um, if if you, you know, approach a guy at the blue line, a puck rusher, or sorry, a forward at the at the blue line, and you know maybe maybe angle him off or use your stick to poke check as opposed to this booming hit. Um, it, it's sometimes more beneficial. Sometimes you can take that puck and join the rush as opposed to before where you nail the guy and you're both you know sitting on the floor. So uh, I feel like there's a there's been a bit of a move away from physicality. Obviously, it's still important. Obviously, it still has a place, but you know uh, even 10 years ago there's there's more uh i guess hype around, around this big hulking guy who can just you know demolish like a Scott Stevens or whoever that can just demolish someone and that was that was seen as a huge plus yeah those
0: those players often even put themselves out of position in order to get to that big yeah. Dion Phaneuf was a monster when he first came into the league he can't do that anymore it's just not productive he leaves his partner and the support from the forward side in the lurch by trying to take away this big hit, and who knows what happens to the play afterwards. So what's what's the role of of the modern day defenseman
1: when the other team is attacking? Like I guess preventing zone entries is, is sort of, is it's kind of been a, a vogue, I guess, uh, topic. Preventing zone entries uh, from the other team and then exiting the zone well, um, those are huge. Um, limiting turnovers, blocking passes. Like from your perspective, if you're looking at a defenseman, let's say a, a I don't know an AHLer joins a, an NHL team, you haven't seen him seen him often. What are you looking for? What are
0: pluses? So, I think as a team, before we get down to individual sure. defensemen, as a team, what I would classify as a defensive system is a three pronged idea. One is the engage, the other is in support, and then the third is transition. So that stand up at the zone entry, that's the engage. What happens after that is either a scramble with players from your own team supporting that scramble, getting the puck back, moving back up the ice in transition. A shot on goal should be a failed attempt at your system. At the same time, um, the zone entry is one aspect. Uh, When I picture it, ideally, I think of a player coming in wide because that's Mm -hmm. what most players will do. You have one engage up against the boards, stops that player. Not to take the puck away, stops that player. The support comes in from the outside of the play. They take the puck back, and they end up transitioning out of the zone. So you get a nice controlled exit. See, the thing about entries, and I've been thinking a lot more about this, is... You're only as good in your zone entries preventing zone entries as your support structure. Mm-hmm. A player on a two-on one is not going to be attempting any zone entries it's just not possible. A player in a three on two might be able to do it if they isolate the two on- one versus the one on one but even then there's an element of risk unless you have a back checking forward and that back pressure now all of a sudden negates three on two yep. makes it a loom. So your support determines whether or not you're able to do the zone entry, or at least do something to prevent a solid, controlled zone entry. If your support's there, you're good. If it isn't, then you're essentially just trying to go back and and perform this engaged support and transition out. That's the goal of the entire system. Um, Players now, I think, are... um, And I used to use Gardner and FNF as a perfect example. Right. Dion Phaneuf was the engage. He was the guy that was the first on to the puck. He was the one that created that situation where Gardner is able to come in, sweep, come around, and transition the puck out, whether that's through an outlet or skated out or whatever the case is. So I think that from pairing's perspective, we're not looking at a rusher and a guy that's a stay-at-home now. We're looking at pairings that are able to, in conjunction with a good enough support from their forwards, engage enemies, take the puck away, and get it back going the other way. And it's not exactly a new
1: concept, but there seems to be more of a focus on five five players attacking, five players defending. Whereas, let's say, I don't know, 30 years ago, it was like the forwards rush the puck and the defensemen are just sort of like, you know, waiting at the red line, essentially, for, for the, the play to come back. But it's more of, you know, there's a lot of covering each other, you know, a guy, a guy pinches on, on uh, for, you know, defense to... Uh, to the offensive zone, there's someone covering him. Like there's there's a lot more interchangeable elements uh, involved now, and I think that's 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 entertaining, and it's also probably more efficient overall to have um, a fluid system. Uh, what do you think of? I guess uh, you know uh, the if if you have a five man attack and a five man defense, um, you could label it, and everything's going well. You could label it total hockey. You could label it whatever you want, but it is it is an interesting. Uh, plan of attack, I guess, or, or scheme uh, to take if, if you're a coach because at the same time, uh, not every player is created equal. Not every player is, is as uh, proficient on defense as he is on offense and vice versa. So it's, you're sort of playing with fire unless you have you know these versatile players,
0: right? So what I would figure coming out of all of that is um, it kind of leads back to that element of support and the example of a player pinching off the point and having a forward or somebody covering, that element of support. If I'm an opposing coach, as a way of breaking down the other team, the support element is what I'm trying to focus on. I want to remove that guy from being able to cover the point or get somebody there so that if they're expecting the puck to go back. like You're you're attacking that support element to break it to being able to give your team some kind of a distinct advantage. Um, Teams that play that support layer best um, are likely the ones that have the most success because you're backing somebody up in the offensive zone. You're playing defense in the offensive zone without the puck. So you're doing something to engage somebody with a puck. You're trying to get the puck back through support and numbers. And then you're still, you're not necessarily transitioning, but I mean, a, a shot on goal or whatever the case is, is the end result. So you're still doing those three little elements. You're just making sure that that support layer is solid enough that you're able to walk off the point. You're not questioning it. It's just become automatic. And then I, I always say it's not about the system. It's the structure within that system. Okay, Explain that. So structure is the fluid, the fluidity that allows a system to breathe. It'll okay. expand as much as it's required, and then it'll contract as much as required. So you're not rigidly going one person at the top, two in the middle, two in Four. the back end. You could fluidly throw a third guy up the middle and back, depending on the situation. So it's the structure of how players interpret where they should be positionally within your system um, that allows teams to be creative enough without the puck. Penguins do a fantastic job of it. That's why there's go. Well, that's
1: the thing is... <laughs> You know, we've been told and, and the evidence has been there in, in who wins the Stanley Cup that you need these, you know, rocks on the back end. You need a number one defenseman or you're not going anywhere. Last year, Penguins, mind you, they have Crosby and Malkin and Matt Murray. Um, but they win the Stanley Cup with really just a misfit group of defensemen. Chris Letang is gone. He's supposed to be the guy that that, that keeps it all together, that is out there for 30 minutes in the playoffs. So you think that can coaching sort of um, hide uh, defensive problems that, and, and I mean defensive uh, personnel problems. Like if you're throwing out a defense core of Mata and uh, who else they have? They had Hainsey. I can't remember. Uh, Brian Dumoulin. Dumoulin. Like a lot of probably three, four, five guys, not not not, not first pairing guys, um, getting heavy minutes. um,
0: so can good coaching from Mike Sullivan sort of hide that? Well, I think that it enhances it specifically because you have players that are still trying to do exactly whats what I'm saying. You have a guy that's trying to engage the, the puck carrier. You need that support from your forwards. If you have a ragtag group of defensemen, which the Penguins were last year, and even the year before that.
1: It, it's yeah, they've never even, had
0: this, you know,
1: all-star back end.
0: And even as far as I recall, As the game was somehow changing, it's not like they always had a whole bunch of puck rushers and all. It was always kind of an immobile crew that just got pucks up the ice. But when you had Crosby and Malkin and guys that were able to just skate it out on their own, there's a compensation factor there. Um, But the Penguins were able to do things like... For me, I felt the most distinct characteristic was the fact that they were able to get pucks out of their zone and into center so that forwards were able to make the puck battles in the neutral zone rather than in the defensive zone. You've limited some risk. You've actually created a potential offensive situation because icing has changed too. You're not getting it yeah. down the ice anymore, and you don't want to put it into the other team's zone because that can cause an issue because the goaltender can get it. You knock that puck right into center ice, and you have your forwards rushing out, and now all of a sudden there could be an odd man rush. You have power by numbers. There's your support layer, if you put, want to put it. Right, yeah. Um, and then you're transitioning right into offense as soon as you win that puck battle. If not, you are in a position to defend your blue line with a proper support layer and have a better chance of thwarting some kind of a controlled zone entry. So it all kind of ends up coming back to it. it depend, that personnel that you have. A coaching staff should be able to decipher what they have back there and use those skills to their advantage rather than starting to prevent. Prevent defense is death. Once you start allowing the team to circle and navigate and and, and do things on the outside just so you can kind of protect your house and prevent goals. It's, it's a sp- little too conservative or a little too passive, right? It's just not the way that the game is played these days. We'll get back to the show in a moment.
1: First, a message brought to you by Indochino the largest made-to-measure menswear brand in the world. Now, I'm a pretty casual guy. I'll go for jeans and a t-shirt over shirt and tie most days. But there's still weddings, there's still formal events, so I've always had to have a suit, at least one, maybe two. In the past, it was always a hassle getting a suit, but with Indochino, I got an hour with a stylist, he took every measurement you can think of, answered all my dumb questions, and left satisfied. Three weeks later, in the mail, I received my new shirt. Indochino is making it easy to get a perfectly tailored suit at an incredible price. You can choose from hundreds of top-quality products and personalize your suit just the way you want it. Here's how it works. Visit a showroom or shop online at Indochino.com Pick your fabric, choose your customizations, submit your measurements, place your order, and it will arrive in the mail within a few weeks. This week my listeners can get any premium Indochino suit for just $499 Canadian at Indochino.com all you have to do is enter the code off the post at checkout that's off the post no spaces that's up to 50% off the regular price for a made-to-measure premium suit that's Indochino.com promo code off the post for any premium suit for just $499 Canadian plus free shipping really it's an incredible deal for a suit that will fit you better than anything off the rack ever could all right let's get back to business I would I would argue that the Dallas Stars are fairly similar to the Penguins in regards to like really high-end guys up front. Um, We'll see what happens with Ben Bishop but you know a capable goalie at worst Um, and then their defense they have guys that can move the puck but do they have guys that that can play great defensive hockey? I don't know like Mark Mathaw, John Klingberg, Dan Hamus, Jamie Oleksiak, Julius Honka like There's some R.A. pieces offensively, or like Mathod is a decent uh, player overall, but I feel like they might be a similar team where in the playoffs we're seeing them win games where we're like, you know, how is this happening? Because look at who they're putting out there uh, as their top pairing, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Where it's just a matter of if they get to the forwards and limit uh, the destruction in in the uh, defensive zone, then everything should even out. And, you know, if, if Sagan scores... Ben scores, if Radulov scores, then all of a sudden they're winning games. Well, that's the essence of theirs, too.
0: With Dallas, too- Mind you,
1: if Hitchcock, I don't know if he's going to be... Uh, my, I mean, we're like two games in the season, so we don't know yet, but I don't know how his system is going to work. If it's going to, you know, uh, if it's going to support uh, this offense heavy team on paper, because it's a defense-oriented system, or... If he's going to change on the fly and go, okay, I have to use these these players uh, the way that, that they should be
0: used. Mm-hmm. I, I'm From what I've read, Hitchcock's approach now in Dallas, it seems to me it's going to try to be a bit more of a um, zone time in the offensive zone system. Okay, yeah. Try to get and limit the defensive zone time, which I guess is a decent concept. However, you know, offensive zone time doesn't score goals. You're trying to score goals. So you score more goals. You don't need to worry about spending that much time in the offensive zone. Um, no, while Hitchcock is kind of known to be a bit more of a defensive oriented. Yeah. Um, to me, that was a bit more of a prevent and quick strike. So you let you let the rush come to you. You thwart it, and you go back quickly, and you hopefully take advantage of you know the mistransition or whatever the case right. is. I'm not really sure, though. I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not sure what to expect out of a group that, not isn't, isn't as inherently defensive, but can really rush that puck. So you have the players that you mentioned. You have guys like uh, the Klimbergs, and and Hunkum is just coming on into his yeah. own, but he could do the same. Um, at the same time the one thing I do like about that Dallas blue line that we haven't really mentioned is those players, they could play within that first five foot band within that blue line Mm -hmm. at the top of the zone, which is just as vital now as it is defending in your own zone because you keeping that puck in and and creating pressure in the offensive zone. Yeah. They have
1: quick sticks and I
0: think they're smart enough to pinch appropriately and just plain puck skills. Things like just, hand movements and, and stabilizing, getting pucks out of their feet or along the boards. Or like,
1: hand-eye, if, if it's clearing attempt, they knock it down. Like Little it. things
0: like that yep. end up paying off. That's important. Keeping the puck in and having no use for a regroup, yes. is it puts your team in a, in a positive situation right off the bat. I, I, I'm not really sure what to expect out of Dallas. Yeah. I'm hoping that I think that they become a little bit more mobile and, and – But I have a feeling that they might end up resorting a little bit to what the Penguins are doing and just trying to get pucks out to speedier forwards and having them move. That seems to also be a very um, common tactic amongst teams now. You don't have to worry about dumping the puck out, but if you're going to do it, try to get it to the neutral
1: zone. Yeah, the neutral zone has become everyone's favorite uh, zone these days. Um, Who are some of your favorite defensemen across the league? I mean... Uh, if we're looking at strictly the best defensemen, you got to consider Carlson, Doughty, Hedman, Keith, you could name them a couple other guys, but who are your favorite to watch, to analyze guys that you just, you get excited about when they, when they come on the screen.
0: So I know that there's a lot of talk about Rasmus Ristolainen online. It, it, it's become a bit of a wedge, you know, what is he? Is he good? Is he not? Right. Um, I think that there's a lot of offensive potential in terms of he can create and produce a lot of points. Is he really a very good defenseman? You can kind of debate the merits and lack thereof of some of the decisions that he makes. So while I feel that he's probably an interesting guy to keep an eye on, um, I don't feel that he's the best defenseman in the league. Um, But he's going to score a lot of points. It's just the peripheral of playing with players like Eichel and O'Reilly, et cetera, et cetera. I think but, he's
1: just, he's in a situation where he's being asked to do way too much because their defensive depth isn't there yet. Like he's last year he played very high minutes and on the penalty kill and all the, all these situations where he probably shouldn't be in. But if he's like, you know, a top pairing defenseman with a guy who can save him here and there, like we talked about this sort of puck mover with a stay at home, um, that might work for him down the road if, if, if Buffalo surrounds them with the right
0: guy. There's probably some pairings, I think, that they're going to end up going over, if not... Throughout the year. Oh, yeah, for sure. But there's also pretty decent talent back there, too. Like, Jake McCabe, I think, is a very underrated defenseman. He may not necessarily get a lot of points or the fanfare, but he's pretty solid in that regard. So I think that once you start looking at the pairings and, and try to figure out something that works, the Sabres will figure that out. So he's one of the players that I've been kind of keeping an eye on. You know Ivan Provorov. Yes. I know that Ghost Despair is 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 the talk of the Flyers, yes. but there's something very special about Ivan Provorov. So I feel that if he doesn't overtake Ghost Ghostespeare this year, it'll eventually happen. So he's one of those cases where I'm I'm expecting much better this year, um, and a real solid. This is what I'm going to be for the rest of my career. So you
1: think his ceiling is much higher? Much than- higher. Yeah,
0: much higher. Now it's nice to be able to have those kind of two pairings, right? At least if you have them both on, on a separate pairing, that makes you pretty dangerous from the back end, regardless of who else is up front. So it's a nice problem to have for Philadelphia, I think, but it's, I think that the, the Provorov is better than the Ghost's pair at this point. Okay. Um, there's other players too. Like there's like little no names like Tim Heed out of, uh, San Jose, who is a newcomer to the scene. I expect him to come in and be flawless in terms of, Seamless transition. Okay. Probably won't get a lot of fanfare, but the Sharks will appreciate what he might bring to their depth. Um, those depth guys can allow your star players to really yep. shine. So that, that's one of the things that I'd be looking at. In general,
1: with defense pairings, what's your philosophy on how you organize it? Because I think most people who pay attention to um, microstats and... I don't know. Maybe maybe they're just they're just eye test people, but have this opinion uh, that with forward lines, it's better to spread out the wealth. In a, in an ideal world, if you have um, if you have three stars, put them on three different lines or two. Um, and that's 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 not a hot take in any way, right? That's pretty uh, pretty, pretty much common knowledge at this at this point. But on defense, I feel like there's a lot of overloading on the first pair on the second pair. I don't know what your
0: opinion is on that. So I think that what you'd like ideally is to have three mobile pairs. It doesn't have to be the same skill level, but that element of mobility has to be there because if you're instilling an overall system that says we're going to be hard on the puck and we're going to move it back and then we're going to bolt, you need to be able to do that uniformly regardless of whoever's on the ice. Obviously, the skill level between your top four is going to be very different than the skill level from your bottom two. The bottom two don't get scored on, but provide that element of mobility the top four do what you can to generate offense so you give a little bit more leeway to guys that are um let's say taking higher risk and making higher risk plays in the effect of trying to create something positive offensively not just for the sake of doing something risky because dipsy doodles yeah in your lower pair i wouldn't expect that i would I would expect a bit more risk coming out of my first two pairings. How I, I how, constructing a pairing these days is not as simple as a stay at home versus a rusher mm-hmm. or a bruiser versus you know it's it's a delicate combination of players that either complement each other and
1: and handedness handedness is, is important. Uh, it's been shown uh, empirically, and then coaches love to have a left and a right. Um, Mike Babcock is is known for being very adamant on having the right. And there's exceptions. Like Ron Hainsey right now is playing on his offside. But um, in an ideal world, most coaches, I think, would want left, right, left, right, left, right. Um, if we're talking about the best pairings, or sorry, the best D groups in the league, I think we would probably start with the Predators. And if we think about what you just said, with having maybe two more skilled Pairings up front, or not up front, but as your number one and two pairings. And then your third one as, you know, you limit the goals against, but we don't expect much from you offensively. I feel like Nashville fits into that. If we look at at their, like Ryan Ellis is out right now. So let's just talk about, like, last year's playoffs. They had Ekholm, Subban, Yossi, and Ellis, Irwin, and Weber. Like, that third pairing is clearly, like, very unflashy. But they more or less were were unflappable or or were contributors in in a defensive sense i don't even know they they might not even have scored either one of those guys in the playoffs you know what i mean they were just Mm -hmm. they limited what was going on in those 10 to 15 minutes that they were on the ice every night and then those other two pairings were obviously instrumental in taking this
0: team as far as they went the other common element among those two guys are they both can skate. So yeah. both Irwin and Weber are able to skate. So it goes back to the if we have these pair, this pairs on the ice and we're expecting mobility from our back end, they have to be able to provide it. So it's not like they were elite players or they might not even be any kind of upper echelon. But they had that one element that provided uniformity to the Nashville Predators
1: defense. There's a lot of third-pairing defensemen out there that – um, for whatever reason, are there and they're they're maybe not suited for um, being like you said mobile, but not necessarily offensive or skilled. They just they just have to stop the bleeding when when they're out there. Um, and it's sort of an underrated part of building a team. If your third pairing is is nothing, or sorry, if you don't have to worry about your third pairing as a coach, like you're laughing. And and the Nashville built built their team in that way obviously you get lucky along the way where you know a guy maybe um, exceeds expectations or or whatever like ryan ellis at one point i don't think was was uh was trending the right way mm. um as a player you know he's highly touted at a junior and then it took him a while to get to the nhl and get settled so you know if if that goes off the rails who knows how how their defense would have looked last year but the fact that they had these two guys on the third pairing that could just get out get out there and you know, do do your job, and, you know, if, if you happen to get an assist in the playoffs, good for you. But otherwise, <laughs> we're happy with you, right? So,
0: And it's funny, we look at that from a specific, you know, top two pairs and a third pair. But when the Flames acquired Travis Hamannick, I was thinking, you know, you have a potential first-line defenseman on three different units. You could put Giordano, TJ Brody, and yeah, on three different units put up some type of a partnership with whatever, Dougie and I haven't even mentioned. And now all of a sudden, you have a very threatening blue line. So while everybody kind of gushes over what Nashville is able to provide, and they have a fantastic back end, yep. that Calgary Flames blue line is probably one of the best in the league. Do you, do you have a favorite around the league, or are you sort of – Calgary, I think, would be the best. I'm not sure that they would be my favorite. I yeah. think that Carolina might be my favorite. Okay. Um, that slave and pesci pairing is just incredible. Falk and Hannafin will eventually end up being together, and I think that that's a great marriage. And then they brought in Trevor Ren, Van Van like and they can... F- throw in some younger players to kind of fill in the holes. Hey, the
1: Flurry is, is their number six right and now. And
0: that's so. not a bad no. option at number six. So, and again, these are players with a little bit of mobility. They can make good outlet passes and get pucks up to a young, speedy forward forward group. And I like Carolina overall there.
1: If we can pause on Calgary, though. So, right now they have Giordano with Hamilton, and they were very dominant last year. So, I understand you pair them again. But they won with Brody and Hamanick on the second pair. Which leaves the third pair, uh, Kulak and Stone, which is, if we relate it to Nashville, uh, you know, a liability, a relative liability. You know, Irwin, Weber, you're going to take every day over Kulak and Stone. So... If you were the coach, would you at least experiment with, I don't know, Stone and Brody or Hamannick and Kulak?
0: I think so. I think that at some point you can't – I I can understand you want to really dominate with those top two pairings. And, I mean, if you're just rolling over two pairings, that's fine and good. And you're giving that third pair a little bit of time in between just to kill some minutes and maybe get some penalty killing time or whatever the case is. Um, But as a coach, though, having the ability – to say I'm loading up top four or spreading it out over three pairings, I think is very vital because you can make those little in-game changes and say, I don't like this little matchup with this guy. I'm going to throw Hamannik on the third. I'm going to throw Giordano on that third pairing. Mm-hmm. Now you deal with it because you have to now counter what I just did to provide pressure to your star player. So it's nice to be able to have that flexibility more so than whatever they're playing with currently.
1: When I was thinking about the best uh, defensive crews in uh, in the NHL, I had Nashville and Calgary, uh, then Anaheim and Carolina. I didn't really rank them, but um, I would probably give Nashville the number one spot. But um, let's talk about Carolina, and then we'll talk about Anaheim. You touched on it with, with Pesci, Slavin, Hannafin, Falk, uh, Trevor Van der Reamsdyke, and Fleury. All of them are 26 and younger, hmm. and they're all... Under either entry level or very very good contracts, um, they have a, the potential to to grow together and to be a dominant. Like not many teams, I feel, grow from the from the defense out, and that's what Carolina has decided to do. Whether that was, and I think it's probably a mixture of you know their draft picks just happening to work out on the defensive end, and maybe leaning towards uh, building from that that point in general. As as a strong point, well, what do you think about that? Is do you think that's a uh, a recipe for success if you have uh, your focus
0: on the defensive end, well, or not necessarily defensive end, but the defensive group? If you have the if you have the personnel to be able to do that, and you see that's the first question because it's one not easy to acquire. You can't acquire really good defensemen; they just don't move yep. that often enough. But you do have enough in your system that you're able to project at some point saying, you know, these guys and players are no longer waiting three, four years to play in the NHL. They're ready at 18, 19, 20, whatever the case Even is. Even defensemen
1: now. It used to be, oh, let's wait till he's like 23, like 24. I mean, they're, they're a little uh, behind forwards and goalies are the same. But it's not. The gap has closed where if there's a guy who's 18 and makes like Zach Wierensky last year. I don't know if anyone was like super surprised because it's just like, hey, he can play. This isn't because they don't have a good uh, group in Columbus. It's like, no, he's like literally one of their best players already.
0: And players come out of the out of their developmental leagues at such a high level of skill that they're ready to just step in and contribute, not just step in and develop and contribute. That step seems to be missing at this point. Wierenski was a fine example, and you know he he smashed in the Calder Cup. uh, uh, the previous spring, so there was already a little. Yeah, audition. I guess they knew what they had. Yeah, and you're kind of thinking, okay, this guy's going to step up and go into the NHL now, and he's been great. And now, all of a sudden, now he's at the biggest stage. And it's funny though, because while Warenski really got all that attention and all of that, Seth Jones has Norris yes. Trophy capabilities. So
1: he's kind of been forgotten about. Yeah, like you. What was his draft class? Um, was it Barkov was two, who was one? Am I thinking of the right class? He like I know I know Jones went fourth.
0: Yeah. I, think, I think
1: I think was three. I don't know if I'm doing the right class here, but anyways, he dropped, and he's sort of been forgotten about, right?
0: Moved from his original team for a valuable. Well, piece that's the in thing; return. he's also been traded yeah. yeah. Um, and again, it's hard to acquire a really good defenseman. Look at what they had to give up in order to acquire him. So, it's an expensive proposition all the way through. So the Calgary thing, we were. Um, I'm sorry, the Carolina thing is great just simply because of the fact that they were able to get a lot of homegrown, controllable talent. And that's pretty much the key. If you can give them enough term and money that you can grow all of
1: them together. Well, and if you include their forwards too, they have like, no word of a lie, like 10 players all inching, you know, developing, uh, all sort of moving in the same direction. And they're going to hit this peak and they have a ton of cap space because they are a team that doesn't have a ton of money to, to deal with. Um, but when, when that time hits, like, look out, this team is going to be, um, I think it'll be one of those things where, you know, not, it's not this year, maybe not next year, but the year after, uh, Ron Francis, Bill Peters are going to really see, you know, all of it come together, all their hard work, like it sounds cliche, but all their hard work paying off, uh, in these really lean years. Like they've had some, Last year, they were an RA team, but like the year before that, they are terrible. And, <laughs> and this year, they're everyone's favorite sleeper pick, and a lot of that comes down to that defense. Like, and, and it's not a secret right now, because a lot of people have been talking about it, but Brett Pesci and Slavin, these are two guys that, that got locked up in the summer, seven and eight years, I believe, and uh, at very reasonable deals, and that's going to give them a ton of flexibility financially moving
0: forward. Also add the fact that they solidified their goaltending from the abysmal state that it was last oh, that's, year. That's, that's, that's the biggest news from the summer. <laughs> yeah, getting Scott, so Scott you, give, you Give the Hurricanes a little bit of, uh, man, you know, if if the stars do align, there's some pretty interesting things. And it's funny because the, the two teams we've been talking about are the ones that I feel are the dark horses, the Carolina Hurricanes and the Calgary Flames. Those two teams start catching fire, start understanding the, the, the concept between scoring a lot of goals and you know, staying within that nice balance. Man, I'd love to see a Carolina Calgary final. Well, wow, that'd be interesting. Going back going back a few years there. With with
1: Seth Jones, I just looked it up. So he was fourth, McKinnon went first, Barkov went second, mm-hmm. Druin went third. So I, I was on the right page, but I could not think of the first overall for close, some reason. Close. But I remember it was McKinnon and Jones for the whole year, back and forth. And I don't remember what happened on draft day, but I believe a bit of it was positional. You know, oh, I don't know if we want to take this defense when we don't know what he's going to be. I wonder if uh, if if this coming, I guess it's next year in 2018 with Darlene, and and this tantalizing talent who's at the start of the year he is considered the number one prospect. We'll see what happens over the course of the season, but if he keeps it, he keeps it up. I wonder if on draft day, if that position, the positional question comes in. Into into a factor, or if we're at a point now where it's like, you know, we see how important defensemen can be. Eric Carlson was a perfect example last year in the playoffs. Maybe teams go, I kind of want an Eric Carlson that can carry a team. Literally, like, him and Craig Anderson were the only reason that they had any business being in, in the Eastern Conference Final. like I, I, You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. It's such a weird league where like one thing happens, and all of a sudden everyone's like, oh, you know what? Yeah, I mean, uh, I could see that happen to us. Why don't we draft Darlene when, when we could be drafting a forward? We're going to go with the best guy available. Who cares what position?
0: Copycat leagues, baby. That's exactly what it's about. Everybody sees what makes the team successful, and they try to adopt that recipe into their own, right? The thing, though, is it's funny because for me, while and this is primarily for analytics, goaltenders have dropped out of being in vogue. You don't draft goalies really high. I feel that it's going to be the same thing amongst defensemen. You get some rare exceptions. For the most part, you probably shouldn't see a lot of defensemen. And I'll be even more specific. Sure. You might find a generational talent like Eric Carlson. Carlson was drafted 14th overall. You just don't know. But there might be those candidates that are worthy of a top five spot. But do you really need a defenseman that you're a little unsure of between 6 and 10? Here you're you're getting an average NHLer. You're hoping that they would be a good scorer or some type of an asset. Do you really think that a defenseman, the way that we see the average pointing out, is really valued so high to be taken with a 6 to 10 pick? And I feel that that's going to be one of the other things that we're going to see. We're going to see a lot more defensemen shift to either the bottom of the first round or completely out of it and start moving into the second and third rounds.
1: Yeah, I guess this draft coming up next year will be a good case study for that because it's supposed to be heavy on, on talented defensemen. So maybe maybe we see some teams sort of zig when other teams are zagging and they go, Well, let's load up on defense and let's see you know, let's try to do it the Carolina way, if you want to call it that.
0: Um, that situational um, perspective can probably put defensemen in vogue again for yeah. that one draft. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's but then possible. It yeah. Goes by the wayside after that, right? What
1: do you think of Anaheim's defense? So they, they were my they were part of my top four and I I had Columbus and Arizona as sort of like up and comers as sort of like on the periphery in a second tier, uh, whereas Carolina, Anaheim, Nashville, and Calgary were were my top my top crews, and I could be missing a team, but I I think I uh, I looked into it deep enough. Um, so Lindholm and Vatn, who are both out right now, so it's kind of annoying to talk about them, but hmm. um, Fowler, Manson, BX, and Montour, BX is. The red flag out of that top six, and then Bochman, who they they picked up in the summer, I think just because of the injuries. Um, so that's their top seven right now. Um, they're, they're 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 deep and they're relatively young. Lindholm is amazingly only twenty three. in twenty five. Fowler twenty six. Um, they've done they've done a good job of of drafting and developing and supporting. You know the Corey Perry's and Ryan Getz laughs that let's say older crew up front even though they have Raquel and they have some younger pieces but like they've they've done a good job of of refilling the cupboards and not not falling into the category of the Sharks or the Kings where they're stuck with these terrible contracts they're stuck with these older players these slow players like I feel like the Ducks can be good for like you know uh, the next 10 years because they've set themselves up with with this defense core, and it's funny because they gave away Shea Theodore, who probably Whoa. fits <laughs> in that same mold. That so. that's like the perfect uh, thing to point to when you want to say like Anaheim's got a good a good uh, thing going on defense is like they had to just part ways with Shea Theodore. And last year, he was I remember uh, Alex Pruitt of, of Sports Illustrated wrote a good story about how how many times he was called up and sort of the the routine that he went through. Uh, he was playing in San Diego and Anaheim, like it was like you know one day he was there one day he was he was here he was all over the place and 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 it wasn't really a detriment to him on most other teams he would have been you know a fifth a fifth guy a fourth guy like it kind of depends on what you think of shade's the- theodore but that that really
0: said a lot about their their depth and now even i mean i haven't had a, a big viewing sample but like you, you see a little bit of I'm going to call it a bit of a prevent. They just they want to make sure that they can remain that they can maintain that mobility. So the Montours, the Mansons, the Fowler's. They want to make sure that they have that presence at the top of the zone. Same three players. Now the Bocherman is a bookmark. Kevin Beeksa is probably limited in his time overall. If they could have found or do find a replacement, that's likely to just go by the wayside. Um, so what Anaheim has done is put questions in my head. Can Vatanen recover? Can Lindholm recover? Can they recover this season? And does it really matter? But are they going to be the same players that they were prior to injury moving forward? And if they are, that's going to be a damn fine blue line.
1: Well, with Bieksa, he's in his last, the last year of his contract. So this is their, this is their final it. hurrah. Yep. And I know that they've been loyal to him. And, I mean, he's getting paid $4 million this year. <laughs>
0: Dramatically overpaid. Um, Anaheim's always been one of these teams I I just can't get a good read on. I think that they're going to stink and they come out smashing, and then I think that oh yeah, they're going to be great and then they just stink it up and you game to game they're hard to to really read. It's difficult,
1: yeah. Cory Perry's off to a good start, but I don't know if we should be surprised by that. Um, with last year he just like hit a wall with his with his shooting percentage, but um what do you think of what Arizona did this summer because they really shorted up their defense. It was it was talked about, but I think it was still a bit of an underrated storyline coming out of of the summer, where John Jacob Tra- just went, "Hey, why don't I acquire NHL
0: defensemen?" <laughs> where last year it was uh, it was a wasteland. And it's incredible too, because it kind of goes back to that mobility. Jason Demers is a great mobile second pairing guy. They got that Oliver Ekman Larson. Doesn't really matter who they put. They got rid of the guys like the Connor Murphys and and and. Like, I mean, Murphy was a decent enough player. He'll do well in Chicago yeah. too, but he wasn't going to do that in Arizona. They needed an upgrade in order to just be average. So they have a decent forward group that they've started to assemble. They acquired the pieces like Derek Stepan, and I'm not as sold on Anthony Duclair, but Max Domi is a talent and Fisher is a talent and Dvorak is a talent and, his lo- and Jordan Martinuk. I know that nobody talks about this guy, but within a year, yeah. everybody's going to be talking about okay, Jordan Martinuk. Okay, good to know. Um And they've enhanced that by bringing in guys like Alex Goligoski from Dallas and and adding an element of mobility, really having one of the best top five defensemen in the league in Oliver ackman Larson, who's, it's a crime, he hasn't won a Norris yet. Um, And then being able to just shuffle in a third pairing to the degree that they please don't get scored on, provide that element of mobility for our forwards, get the pucks up to them, they'll deal with the scoring. Yeah, so... Ekman
1: Larson Goligoski, Jalmerson Demers, Shen Chikrin is is their top side. I mean Kevin Conaught and Adam Clendetting is they have eight defensemen right now according to cap friendly on their um, on their books but <laughs> I ju- I don't have it in front of me what they what they had on the roster last year but they've they brought in Jalmerson and Demers uh, and sort of they've upgraded you know Demers was for a throwaway forward. Jomerson was for uh, for, Mur- for Murphy and I think there was a pick, but basically like more or less just, you know, one for one. Like they th- immediately just those two alone uh, brings that, that, that D crew from like bottom of the league to like average or maybe even better.
0: It was interesting. I thought that Anthony D'Angelo was actually a pretty good player in Arizona. Now he gets shifted over to the Rangers and I think he'll do well there too, but they – they replaced him entirely with Jason Yeah. Now the contract is different. The situation is different. But the skill set is essentially the same.
1: D'Angelo's um, already moved around a bit. And I mean, this is totally like recency bias. But during the Rangers-Leafs game on Saturday, and mind you, the puck went off of a player. But um, he tries to make an LA pass. All of a sudden, it's in the back of the net. I think it was Hyman that scored. He's always been a player that, you know, that would, you know, drive coaches nuts where it's like he has all the skill in the world. He seems like a smart player, but I guess you could say, I don't want to compare him to Jake Gardner, but sort of like the bonehead play, you know, comes out once a game, once every other game, something like that. And that's what people remember. I was on the radio like a week ago and they asked me about Jake Gardner. And I said, I'm, I'm generally very high on the guy. I think, you know, if if you have a defenseman who, when he is out there, your team is a better team than when he's on the bench, that's a huge plus, And that's what Jay Gardner has been for years. And then, you know, the reason why people get, get on him, get on his case, is because he makes the one glaring error. And that's what people think about. That's what, you know, if you're watching the game as a fan, you go, oh, typical Gardner. Like, we got to get rid of this guy. Whereas if you look at the whole body of work, he's actually a really good defenseman and his skating is out of this world. But with D'Angelo and Gardner, they're sort of stuck in this this spot where I don't know if they're ever going to win over the public or, all their, or their coaches trust completely. Like, I know Babcock likes Gardner, but it's just sort of like... Their, their high-risk plays, I guess you could say, uh, bites them bites them in the ass sometimes.
0: Mm. Yeah, Jake Gardner, I think, is a specific case. D'Angelo, you're right. He makes his decision-making. May it's not, not the be. greatest
1: comparison because Gardner, I think, is so much further along mm. in his development, and Gardner is, um, depending on how uh, how you view him, but I think even even his critics would say he's like a three, a three in the NHL on a good team maybe a four if you're particularly harsh, whereas some people think he's a number one. So, anyways, D'Angelo isn't really in
0: that league, but they're sort of similar players. From the skill set perspective, they could both move the puck. They could both really create within the offensive zone good shots, etc., etc. There's a lot of distinct similarities. See, the thing with Gardner for me, it's not the right phrase, but I'm going to say it anyway. He's sure. easy to play against, and by that I mean – He grew up as a forward. Yes. It's not easy to become a defenseman after you've played forward. You develop the defensive game by doing these things over and over and over. The things I mean. Physicality. He attempts to hit like a forward, and when he's absorbing hits like a defenseman, he shies away. We've seen him try to move away from physicality. I don't think that's a cowardice issue. I just think that's a...
1: It's like his natural... It's a
0: natural instinct. Yes. And it's not bad because you don't need... You could avoid a hit and then smother. It, mm-hmm. It's a perfectly valid strategy. He doesn't do that very well because it, it takes a while to develop that skill set to be able to do it. You can't do that when you're in the NHL. You've got to perform now. You can't be learning the nuances of the defensive game. His pivoting is atrocious. So any player that gets around him wide... Can easily take Gardner in because he's not able to pivot. And
1: that again, way. that's him growing up as a forward. Like if you're a forward, you're not practicing that when you you're didn't seven need years to old. Do it.
0: Exactly, and that's why I think we see some of these issues with Gardner. And when you haven't been able to practice these skills, and other teams know that, they're going to exploit it. But you put the puck on Gardner's stick, and it's magic. Yes. It's it's a completely different situation. So going back to what I was talking to before uh, about Dion Phaneuf and him being a great pairing, Phaneuf is the guy that gets the engage. Gardner is the guy that gets the puck. Gardner doesn't have to worry about pivoting or or, or getting, you know, physical temp. Uh, sorry, physical abuse or whatever the case is. You don't need to worry about that because somebody else is doing that for you. You do what you do best, and that's where it comes into play. Where coaches go, okay. I need to get my pairing straight so I can maximize this guy's skill set yes. by using this guy's maximized skill set. So it, it's a tricky thing. There's never been a gardner pair, uh, enough pairing ever since. But, I mean, there's going to always be some player that's able to engage a puck rusher to get Gardner the puck.
1: And when you say engage, just to clarify for people, you're saying, like, a guy's coming
0: at you. You need to take some sort of action to, to change his course Move them off to the side. Perfectly engaged. Get your stick in there with a good gap. Do something to not allow the Russia to do something with disrupt the their correct their
1: plan. Essentially correct. Um, do you think that a guy like Gardner, like there's a couple guys around, like like Gardner's maybe not a good example, but Brent Burns, Dustin Bufflin, they're sort of rovers. Are they not? Are they not guys who? <laughs> If you put them on forward, and oh, Bufflin's played forward, Brent Burns has played forward, but they haven't in years. Um, if you put them on forward, do you think that they're they're still capable players, or do you think that they're in the right spot as defensemen? Because so they're sort of in the middle somewhere.
0: That's funny because Brent Burns really gets a lot of the credit for this, but it was Dustin Bufflin that really became the initial rover. You know, He was that secondary piece between the forward unit and that, that last defenseman who was able to integrate himself with the forward unit, but still able to play defense when required. Um, You'll probably hear the phrase a lot in the NHL these days, four at the line. So you're trying to hit the blue line, the offensive blue line with four players. Can't do that unless you involve a defenseman. Bufflin was that guy. Brent Burns became that guy and was just so much better at it because of his presence in that top spot of the offensive zone that he's really perfected the position. So those two players are somewhat pioneers in instilling what the future of the defensive position is going to look like. You might have one rover per unit. You might have two players that are capable of doing it as long as they're able to read off of each other. But that's essentially the essence of what defense is going to play. And if these players in the future coming in, they're already skilled, they can skate, they got great edges, they're gonna hit that ground running, and if they could really become good rovers right off the bat, teams are already in a really solid position.
1: Well, let's <clears throat> let's end off by talking about um, the four S's of scouting, which I don't know if 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 you coined it, but you you at least have you've written about it and you've talked about it um, extensively, and it's something that I read maybe last year, and, and a couple of light bulbs went off because. Um, you know, thinking as a scout or as an analyst is beneficial. Um, in relation to defensemen specifically, what, which one of those S's and 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 you can you can you know expand on them? Which one is most important uh, in developing, uh, or if you're a scout that you're looking for first to to have that checkmark?
0: So. Uh, Unfortunately, it's not really my own term. I wish I could say it was. Yeah, I wasn't sure. I I didn't know how to bring that up. I'm I'm figuring that somebody has heard this type of phrase in a variety of different ways. For me, it was just said it was the four S's of scouting. Speeds, smart, skills, and skating. So you can classify and break down players based on those four Mm -hmm. topics. And there's tons of subtopics. I mean, we talk about skating, but edges and acceleration and speed and where to speed is speed smarts is speed skating is speed a skill we can start categorizing the way so while i start breaking down players using those as kind of my guide marks mm-hmm. it's not necessarily those individual skills it's the integration of skills a smart fast but not really quick player like fast off well,
1: yeah let's let's pause so what's the difference between fast and quick
0: so quickness and to me it's the most important skill is those first two or three steps acceleration whether you're in a stop dead stop or already in motion the whole game of hockey is about creating separation or closing down gaps so you need to be able to do that with two or three really quick steps maybe a pivot here and there but those first three steps are vital
1: and that's why mcdavid is so Oh, that's so perfect. Fa- he's so fast because he's so quick, if that makes sense. Ooh, like right off the bat, that, that second goal in the opener. Mm. The reason why he had this small window and just bursted wide open is because, you know, once he got the puck on his stick, he was gone. Those first couple steps and those crossovers and the way that he, I mean, he's, you know, he's immortal basically when it comes to skating. But, um that really shows that like quickness is everything. All of a sudden, he has a breakaway for half the ice.
0: So now imagine having a player that can do that and be that explosive but doesn't have the hands or the creativity to be able to finish what he's begun. So what
1: good is it, essentially? And that, I'll just interject. When, when I was in London covering the London Knights, Andreas Ath- Athanasiou was just starting out, and the common... Thing I would hear from scouts is like skating's out of this world, but his his mind and his hands have just not caught up to that. So he'll get a breakaway and he just fumbles it, or um, you know he, he's wide open because of his skating and he can't. One time, like it's just one of those things where it came to McDavid very naturally. Athanasiu has uh, has come along and and is a is a good NHLer, mind you. He should probably figure out what he's doing this another year story, and but... play some hockey. But another story. But that's kind of an example, right? Where like you have these. You have this one elite tool, but if you don't have at least the other tools in your toolbox, they might not be elite. They might be good, okay, bad. If you don't have them at all, like you're, it's useless.
0: I call it... Well, I have two prime examples of that. One is Antoine Vermette. All skates, no hands. Second one is very dear to a lot of Leaf fans. Unfortunately, it didn't work out last year. <laughs> Michael Grabner. Yes. All speed, yes, no hands. perfect, yes. And then last year, he goes and surges with a shooting percentage that's just god-awful and... and tries to prove everybody wrong, but but that's essentially the thing. You can't just and, – and speed is a very misunderstood element too. I, I don't need players that can break, you know, the 10-second mile or whatever the case is. I need players that are able to play within a certain pace. That pace is NHL pace. When a player comes from the AHL up to the NHL, that's the first thing that I'm looking for. Can they maintain that pace? Um, you don't have to be fast or skilled. You just need to be able to play with the turns, make sure that you're constantly in a position of support or, or attack or whatever the case is. Um, pace is a misunderstood element as well. So I find that that first two, three-step quickness and pace being the two most important things that I look for in a player, regardless of whether they're coming out of junior, the AHL, or even currently in the in the NHL um but th- it's the integration of skills that i think is most most important for defensemen specifically i used to think that it was just skating and now everybody's a good skater so edges things that are going to possibly be exploited by forwards we talked about jake gardner's pivots pivots are very important um smarts and i can't quantify smarts you can quantify it after the players made yes. the play but you're essentially looking for are they making the right moves are they playing within the confines of their their system when they freestyle because players freestyle out of the system all the time yep. coaches go nuts what do they do do they come back and and like mindlessly just go back to their positions or do they compensate by placing themselves in the position that was vacated in order for that player to be in their support. There's those elements. So for me, a smart, mobile defenseman with a little bit of puck skill, especially if that skill is really prevalent at the top of the zone, is more important to me than some of those defensive defensemen or a big, strong guy with a big, long gap that can't really produce all those elements that we just discussed. Um, you have those exceptions, Brandon Carlo in, in, in Boston, big hulking guy with yeah. a lot of mobility and a gap that's like—it's incredible. How do you not? How do you try to get in there, right? Um, so they're very different from from what I think we used to use to develop, or sorry, to assess defensemen. Yeah. And I feel that probably even within the next few years, that still is going to evolve. There's tons of things that defensemen have brought in now that they hadn't brought in the past. Four to the blue line. If you want four to the line, you need to be able to have a player that can, A, skate, skate at the same pace, doesn't have to break any speed records, but it's got to be staying ahead of the game, and they got to be smart enough to understand. I can jump in, and I might have to jump back. So those are the elements that I'd be looking for from a defensive perspective.
1: Interesting. Um, and then... I mean, we can talk about forwards maybe on another podcast. That's cool. that's, an, that's an idea. Um, but but with, with defensemen, um, do you think that the quote-unquote stay-at-home or defensive defensemen, and, and you're kind of already seeing it with Velasik and, and those type of guys at home, as I mentioned off the top, um, do you think those guys are, are here to stay? Or do you think, like, over time it's just going to become – sort of more offensive oriented as a position in general, like it's awkward because the the positions actually called defenseman where, um, maybe it should have had a different name, but, but do you think over time we're slowly moving towards that position being more about getting the puck out of the zone, uh, as soon as possible, as opposed to like being passive and just defending and keeping guys to the outside and, um because you see like so with Vlasic like mind you he's not new to the league but he was sort of ahead of his time I guess you could say as as a guy who didn't need to be physical isn't flashy in any way no frills but you could argue is the best defenseman uh on the Sharks uh you know I guess it depends where where you see uh Burns fall into into the equation but um it seems like that that type of guy is is going to stay around but maybe it, it's importance or or the money that those guys are going to get paid are are is going to is going to be shifted towards these offensive guys
0: so i think that the the definition of defensive defenseman from now moving over um is that player that does the first thing to initiate the transition so it's not big plotting guys that can't skate or don't have any mobility. It's those guys like the Vlasics that does that first initial step to allow your team to be able to get the puck. While I think that a shot on goal is not the end result because it never should be the end result of any defensive system, a shot on goal from a perimeter where a goaltender has plenty of time to be able to capture, even bobble and cover it up, that's fine. I can live with that. But a defensive defenseman has to be able to do something to help his team get that puck back. So that is what I would look for for defensive guys right now. Vlasic is probably the mold. Um, there are other players that do like it very Like Pe- well. you
1: could say Pesci is one, Adam Larson and Edmonton. Slavin is actually much, much
0: better than that. Yeah. Um, You could go down the list. Dion Phaneuf is a pretty decent example at this point. Um, Shea Weber in Montreal, Matthias Ekholm in Nashville. You could go down the list and go, like, even a guy like Ekblad, who's really a bit more offensive, has a decent enough defensive side to be able to provide that type of play. So they don't have to be defined by it, although if that's all they bring to the table, then so be it, assuming that they're not just defaulting to some type of prevent – you know, protect the house kind of garbage that, that gets you goals scored against. Then yeah, that's essentially the type of player that you're looking for.
1: Awesome. Gus, thanks for, for coming by. I think, uh, we went down a road and then went, uh, you know, took a couple of shortcuts and then went, went, come back, came back on the road, a couple of detours. Um, how can people find your work? Because, uh, I'd like for people to follow you and, 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 uh, hear your takes, uh, daily or whatever, weekly. Um, your twitter is
0: uh at cats hockey with a k so k-a-t-s hockey um i'm going to be providing a weekly maybe a little bit more on maple leafs hot stove specifically for Great. the leaves this year something i haven't done for a long time so i kind of i'm looking forward to providing specific leaf stuff not day-to-day coverage yep. of game stuff that that other better people are doing that kind <laughs> of stuff yeah know? um i just want to try to provide some other type of insight see how much video we can get in do a little bit of different analysis um, I write on McKean's every once in a while and I have a weekly column on Rotoworld
1: awesome you're all over the place with the uh, fantasy hockey the video the, anal- the analysis
0: yeah well you seems know, like your wheelhouse you gotta have to you have to be able to kind of move around and, and wear a different hat these days right yeah. you should know right <laughs> so, <you're laughs> yeah gonna... exactly
1: alright thanks Gus
0: pleasure is always mine thank you